Please take your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks in front of you, you can believe you can find that text on page 918. The title of our sermon this morning is Saul Converted, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are Damascus, Persecuting, and Baptized. Today, in Acts chapter 9, we are going to read of arguably the most important and significant conversion to Christ that has ever happened in the history of the world. In Acts chapter 7, we saw the persecution and the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. And in the opening verses of Acts 8, we, uh, we see a man named Saul. He was also he was introduced in Acts 7, but we see him again in Acts 8, that he was, he was overseeing the, the persecution, the murder of Stephen. He gave approval to it. And then in the early verses of Acts 8, uh, this man Saul launches a, an all-out attack, a full-blown attack on the church. He was entering house after house, Luke writes, dragging men and women off to prison. And it drove the disciples of Jesus out of Jerusalem. Remember, they had been uh, focused on witnessing to Christ in Jerusalem. But Jesus had said eventually they would make it out into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, this is the moment in Acts chapter 8 where that scattering takes place. The church is scattered at this persecution of Saul into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 8, we saw how the Samaritans, many of the Samaritans, came to hear and to believe the gospel. And these believing Samaritans were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit. And they, in all of this, thus fulfilled that second uh, phase, if you will, of Jesus' commission to his apostles in Acts 1.8. Started in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria began to hear and respond to the gospel as the kingdom of God advanced. And so up through Acts chapter 8, that's really what we see taking place, is this inclusion of both, of both Jews and Samaritans into the one people of the kingdom of God. And today, we see God, in converting this man Saul, make preparations for the final shift that's going to occur when the Gentiles are, as a group, included into the covenant community of the people of God. And so I want to read these verses, Acts 9, 1 through 19, outline them, and then we will get to work. Luke writes, But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will now show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The main idea here in in these verses is that God converts Saul, at least a main reason for his conversion is to use him as an instrument in particular for taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so in these verses, there are three interactions that I want you to see with me that bring all of this about. And the first is a conversation between Jesus and Paul in verses 1 through 9. 1 through 9, we see an exchange between Christ and Paul on the road to Damascus. Then in verses 10 through 16, we see a conversation in Damascus between Christ and a disciple named Ananias, different than the one who died in chapter 5. Right? So you have, that's in verses 10 through 16. 1 through 9, Christ with Saul. The second, 10 through 16, Christ with Ananias. And third, we see not so much a conversation, but in verses 17 through 19, uh, an exchange of sorts between Ananias and Paul. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, verses 1 through 9, we see this exchange between Christ and Saul. Saul, we're told, in verse 1, is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So as all is going on with the Samaritans in Samaria with Philip and Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch uh, on the way to Azotus, Paul all the while is dragging men and women off to prison. Um, In Acts 22, speaking before a Roman tribunal after his arrest in Jerusalem, Paul himself recounts his conversion, and he describes himself there as having, he says, persecuted the way. Uh, The way was sort of a 
pejorative nickname for the church at the time. And he, he gives even more detail of his conversion, what he was doing here in his defense before Agrippa in Acts 26. He says there, he says, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them all, or I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so Saul very clearly is a vehement enemy of the church and of its Christ. And now we read here in Acts 9 of a particular time where he was going to a particular city, Damascus. He, we're told he had sought letters from the high priest to be given to the synagogues there that he might bring any belonging to the way back to Jerusalem to be put in prison. And he, he obtains these letters, and so he heads over to Damascus. But on his way there, the Lord intervenes. Luke tells us that as Saul was traveling down the road, a great light from heaven shone around him, and he fell to the ground. And the light, or sorry, and out of this light, a voice addressed him Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asked, Well, who, who are you, Lord? And the voice replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he tells him to rise and enter the city. And he would then be told what he was to do. So Saul gets up and he is blind. He's blinded by this interaction. And so he has to be led by the hand into Damascus. And there he neither ate nor drank for three days, we're told. It's an interesting event, to be sure. And and based on what is said in the three accounts of Paul's conversion here in Acts 9 and Acts 22 and Acts 26, we can piece together a bit of what's going on because you don't get the exact same story every time. You have Luke's account of it here in Acts 9, and you have Paul describing it two different times in 22 and 26, and there's different emphases in each one. But you pull it all together, and what we know is that there was a bright light from heaven. There was a voice speaking out of this light from heaven in, in either Hebrew or a Hebrew dialect, and that the Lord Jesus himself, in the midst of this, appeared to, to Saul. And Saul could see and understand all of it. The others who were with him, however, couldn't see the light. Or they could see the light, rather, but they couldn't see Jesus. In 26.16, Paul speaks. He's very clearly that he saw Jesus in this. Jesus came and appeared to him, and it wasn't just a light or a, uh, a, a, un, a, a disembodied voice. Now, the others could hear the voice. They could see the light, but they couldn't see Jesus. They could hear the voice, but they couldn't understand it, according to Paul in Acts 22. And so he's left, uh, he's alone. Uh, he alone is blinded by this experience. So what do we learn from this exchange? And, and some of those details, it's sort of interesting to kind of piece them together and, and think about all that. But as far as the overall point, what, what's happening here in these opening nine verses? And, and really, this is the point that we need to take away from this. 
Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord. He alone does all that he pleases. He alone can work his holy will. And this has significance both for the church and for Saul himself here. For the church, namely, I'm thinking of the saints in Damascus, there was literally a target on their heads. Saul was on his way to arrest them. Probably some of them would have been put to death. And yet, God stopped Saul in his tracks. You know, all through the Bible, we read of God intervening and overcoming sinful rebellions in the world, often for the express purpose of delivering His people. One of my favorites, if you've ever been in counseling with me for anything regarding fear, you've heard me talk about 2 Kings 6, where Elisha and his servants are being hunted down by the Syrian army. And the Syrian wakes up one morning to find the entire hillside covered with Syrian horses and chariots. God then strikes the army blind. And Elisha leads them by the hand into the capital of Israel as defeated foes. Or what about the time in Genesis 19? Think of Abraham's nephew Lot. He's living in Sodom. And God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy the city because of his great wickedness. But he promises, after some requests from Abraham, he promises that he won't destroy Lot. So God sends two angels to the city, basically to tell Lot to pack it up and leave. But while they're there, they're at Lot's house, and the men of the city approach the door asking Lot to hand them over to them so that they might violate them. Now, as shocking as that is, even more shocking in this story is that Lot then inconceivably offers his daughters to the men of the city instead, but they refuse and they threaten to do worse now to Lot since he has decided to become judge over them. But before they can get to him, the men, these angels, they pull Lot inside and they strike the men of the city, what? With blindness preventing them from carrying out their wicked schemes. Over and over again in the Bible, we see, and the Bible wants us to see repeatedly, God is in control, and He intervenes on His people's behalf. The psalmist declares in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? To that we might add, The Lord is on my side. What can the devil or the elemental spirits of the world, or anything else in all creation do to me. The saints at Damascus were marked out by evil, but they were also marked out by God. The same is true for you, brothers, sisters. You are in the hands of God. Not one hair can fall from your head apart from the will of of your heavenly Father who has saved you through His Son, the Lord Jesus, strong and kind. There's another lesson that we learn from this. Not just is Jesus the sovereign Lord, but Jesus identifies so closely with His people that when we are persecuted, 
he is persecuted. Jesus is no distant king watching from afar. He has drawn near and so united himself to us that he can say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? He does not say, why are you persecuting my people? But why are you persecuting me? You know, and, and really, we can boil the, the message of the Bible down to this. God has made his dwelling with man, indissolubly uniting himself to us in Christ. The Bible is all about the fact that God has created the world. He has placed people to rule over it, placed people in it to rule over it, in order that he might make his home with them. I will be your God and you will be my people is the constant refrain of the Old Testament. And we see its implications here. Some of its implications here in Acts 9. So what, brother and sister, let me ask, what what does that do for you this morning, right now? To see the solidarity of the Lord with his saints. Do you know that Jesus has so united himself to you through the instrument of faith, that when you suffer, it's as if he suffers. He's not disinterested in your pain. He's not watching from afar, mildly curious. He takes it as a personal affront and offense when his people suffer. This seems to shed greater clarity on what we saw back in Acts 7. Remember in Acts 7? Stephen, stoned, and he saw into the heavens, he saw the Son of Man, what? standing at the right hand of God. He wasn't sitting at the right hand of God. He was standing at the right hand of God. And, and we, we understood from that that there was something provoking about the, about the stoning of Stephen, provoking in the Lord Jesus. Paul, in persecuting Stephen, was persecuting Jesus himself. Jesus was personally involved and invested in the suffering of his servant that day. Perhaps by analogy, is it not similar in the way that we parents feel about our children when they are harmed? My sons are not utterly separate entities from me. If someone hurts them, he hurts me. I am, as their father, bound to them in such a way that you cannot do a good thing to them without doing it to me. Nor can you do a bad thing to them without doing it to me. And the same with my wife. To speak kindly to or about my wife is to speak kindly to or about me. To speak poorly of a man's wife is to speak poorly of the man himself. So it is with Jesus and His church. To love the church is to love Christ. To hate the church is to hate Christ. So Paul, persecuting Christians, was persecuting Christ himself. And so let us think well about one another. Brother, sister, if you talk poorly of a fellow Christian, you are talking poorly of Christ. So that's the first exchange, Paul, uh, Saul and Jesus. 
But then in verses 10 through 16, we see a second thing, an exchange between Christ and Ananias. The Lord comes to Ananias in a vision, and he instructs him, instructs him to go to a street called Straight, and he would find this man Saul at Judas' house, uh, a man from Tarsus. And he would be praying. He said that Saul had seen a vision of Ananias coming to him to lay hands on him, that he might receive his sight once more. And Ananias responds with some concern. Lord, I've heard of this guy. He's wicked and evil. And my life could very well be put in harm's way if I go to him. But the Lord reassures him. He tells him to go. He says, because Saul has two lessons to learn. His call to service and his call to suffer. As far as, far as Saul's service, he is called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, to the children of Israel. Now, uh, we use the word Gentile a lot. I, I assume most of you know. If you don't, Gentile is just it's from a Latin word that means tribes or nations. So when you read about Jews and Gentiles, that's, that's all we're talking about is the Jews, those di- uh, physically descended from Abraham through Isaac, the Gentiles, or, well, everybody else. And so Paul is commissioned to take the gospel to the nations, to the ends of the earth. In Acts 26, Paul tells Agrippa that he was commissioned to the Gentiles that he may open their eyes so that he may turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. That was Paul's call to service. That was Saul's call to service. In 2 Corinthians 11, Saul outlines his sufferings. Or, yeah, 2 Corinthians 11. He, uh, we won't turn there, won't read it, but in short, he says he was beaten a lot. He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was left adrift at sea, he was in danger on the rivers, danger from robbers, from Jews and Gentiles, he was in danger in the city, in the wilderness, and from false brothers. The city faced toil and hardship, insomnia, hunger, thirst, and uh, all kinds of extreme weather conditions, and on top of all of it, he said he had an anxious spirit over all the churches. He was suffered a lot arguably more than any of us have or probably ever will. And eventually, he was killed for Christ. That was his call to suffer. And so what's the lesson here in these verses 10 through 16? Well, the lesson lesson is simple. The gospel is the power of God. Is it not astounding what God did with this man, Saul? Think about it. Here's Saul. This is how he describes himself in Philippians chapter 3. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. To talk about a man of self-confidence. Saul had no need for a suffering and crucified Messiah. It was, to say the least, a stumbling stone. It is hard to conceive of a man who, have had, who would have had less interest in taking up his cross 
to follow Jesus to an agonizing, humiliating death. And yet that is exactly what happens. That is exactly what happens in Saul's life. Saul's life on this Damascus Road encounter changed forever. And so, brothers, sisters, what about us? Friend, what, what about you? Are, are you of the unlikely sort? Now, this unlikely sort, perhaps, with Saul or you, it could run in maybe one of two directions. Perhaps someone, maybe you're here today and you are just too self-assured to find Jesus of much interest. You're very confident in yourself and you know what you're doing. You know how you want to live your life, and the idea of picking up a cross to follow Christ is, seems unnecessary to you. Perhaps you're too confident in your pedigree or your accomplishments to believe that Jesus needs you. I'll stand on my own before God if I have to. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Or maybe it's the other direction. Maybe you look at Saul and you don't think he should have been confident. He was a murderer. And maybe you think about yourself, maybe I've done too much bad stuff. Are you too evil, too wicked for Jesus to save? You know, one of the reasons, according to 1 Timothy 1, 15, that God saved Saul was to make it abundantly clear to everybody that God saves sinners, even really, really, really wicked ones, like this persecuting Pharisee. And so, are you too proud or are you too perverse to be saved? Friends, the conversion of Saul proves it to you that you're not. But maybe it's not you that you're thinking of. Maybe there's someone in your life, a, a, a family member, a, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor. Are, is there someone or are there people in your life that you look at and you just think, man, That dude is way too wicked to ever come to faith. She's just way too proud of herself to ever need Jesus. Friends, if it can happen to Saul, it can happen to them too. So would you pray for that person? Do you pray for that person who just in your mind are just beyond reach or are way beyond reach? Ask God to give you, ask God to give others opportunity to speak the words of life, the saving words of the gospel to them. Christ, dead for sinners, now alive at the right hand of God, imparting eternal life to those who believe, giving pardon for sin and drawing them into fellowship with God. And pray that through that spoken word, that God would impart eternal life to the most unlikely candidates for salvation that we know. Wouldn't that be great? Imagine two, three, four, five years from now, and the person that you least suspect that you know, the person that you least suspect to come to Christ is sitting in here with us, having been encountered by the Lord Jesus. It happens, friends. It happens, and so let us pray and hope that it would happen here among us. So that's the second encounter. We've seen 
Christ's encounter with Saul. We've seen Christ's encounter with Ananias. And now he's, he's prepared these two men for their encounter with one another. And again, this isn't so much of an exchange here in verses 17 through, or not so much of a conversation. Paul, uh, Saul, Paul doesn't say anything. He's not, we don't get any words from him here, but some action. Um, we get an exchange between Ananias and Saul. What we see is that we see Ananias' response to the Lord's charge to him. We see what he says to Saul when he gets there, and we see what Saul does after he regains his sight. So what happens? Well, Ananias goes, he finds Saul, he lays hands on him, he um, tells him that Jesus sent him, that, uh, that Saul might regain his sight and receive the Holy Spirit. And immediately when this happens, something we're told something like scales fall from his eyes. He had been blinded, remember, and there was apparently something on there, and they fell off. And he could see, not just physically, but we're to understand spiritually as well. And so, having come to Christ, he gets baptized, he eats some food, and was strengthened. And there are a couple of things in these verses worth mentioning now. The, the first is just to notice that Paul's first act after his conversion was what? To be baptized. Having encountered Jesus, having received his spirit, he gets baptized. There's really no denying the significance of baptism in the life of the followers of Jesus. And we will see this over and over again throughout this book. And so, brothers and sisters, would you pray with me? Would you join me in praying for really just a need to keep this baptismal pool full as God would be pleased to add to our number day by day, week by week, year by year, those who are being saved. But a second thing to see here um, is Ananias's faithful courage to God's command. He's, he's clearly nervous in verses 13 and 14. But God tells him to go, and so he goes without complaint or really much reservation. So how about, how about us? How about you? Are you willing to be courageous? Are you willing to have courage to follow the command of Christ? Ananias knew the threat to the church that Saul posed, but he went anyway. He trusted the voice of Christ over the voice of his own fears. It takes courage to follow Jesus. And I want you to notice, what was it that gave him the courage that he needed? What was it that overcame his fear? Was it not simply a word from his Lord? Lord, this guy's murdering your people. And Jesus simply repeats, go. But then, he gives a brief explanation to him as a word of comfort to send him on his way. And so what is it, if you're lacking in courage, friend, what do you need? You need a word from your Lord. A conviction and assurance of what you are to do. So we need to know, love, and obey God's word. So those are the three exchanges, interactions. I want to I back up a minute then in closing here 
and, and consider, um, are, are there other big picture lessons to learn from, from this account? And the first thing is this, do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the sovereign Lord who stopped the persecuting Pharisee right in his tracks? Do you trust your great sympathetic high priest who has so identified himself with you that he has died for you, having lived for you, he now he has died for you and now prays for you every moment of every day? And he so identifies with you, believer, that when you suffer, in some sense, he takes it as his own suffering. Do you trust the gracious, merciful Lord who saves sinners like Saul and extends that salvation to sinners like you, like me, like the person that you just doubt will ever believe? And do you trust the providing Lord who speaks to His people in their time of need, offering words of comfort and assurance? But beyond that, Acts 9 here is not just about personal life lessons that we can take away for ourselves. It offers those things to us. But we need to consider Acts 9, this conversion of Saul, as a, an extremely important, a, a pivotal moment in the life of the church. In the life of not just church history, but world history. Saul, or Paul, he came to be the preeminent missionary and Christian theologian in all of church history. This scene before us, the conversion of the persecuting Pharisee, as I said in our introduction, it is arguably the most important conversion to Christ of anyone in the entire world. If it were not for this, none of us would be here today. Now, of course, this provides no credit to Paul himself. God could have used anyone to do what Paul did in some sense. So the point isn't to praise Saul, to praise Paul, but to praise God. It doesn't praise the man to say that this act of the risen Lord Jesus brought about the most significant Christian conversion ever. But here's the truth. No one in the history of the Christian church has, or will have, we can safely assume, had more influence on the church than Paul. Consider just a few examples of Paul's influence. Augustine was converted. How? Well, he overheard overheard a neighbor boy repeating the phrase, take up and read. And so what does he do? He grabs Bible and he begins reading Paul's letter to the Romans. And he gets saved when he gets to Romans 13, 11 and 14. About putting off the deeds of darkness, putting on the armor of light. Fast forward to the 1500s. Martin Luther was saved through the reading and understanding of the book of Romans. That the gospel is the power of God and the salvation and the righteous shall live by faith. Fast forward again to the 1700s. John Wesley was converted at Adler's Gate. Aldersgate, rather. Where he heard a sermon, you guessed it, from the book 
of Romans. And he said he felt his heart strangely warmed. On and on we could go. Paul wrote 12 other letters in the New Testament besides Romans. How many saints in all of church history will give thanks to Christ that he used this man and that the Spirit inspired these letters that he wrote and that hundreds, thousands of years later, Christ still speaks through them now, calling dead sinners to life. How many, I'm not looking for a show of hands, but how many of you here perhaps might look back at your life and say, it was through one of Paul's letters that I was saved. But even if it wasn't through a specific reading of one of Paul's letters that God saved you, saved us. Nevertheless, is it not true that our entire Christian theology is wrapped up in Paul's letters? How much of our understanding of the law and the gospel and the way of salvation comes to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul? You know, I I wasn't converted directly through one of Paul's letters that I'm aware of anyway. I don't remember that. But his letters live at the very core of my understanding of the gospel message. So brothers, sisters, let us thank God for this moment recorded for us here in Acts 9. Where Christ stepped in and intervened. He stepped in front of the ravenous rabbi, saving not only the saints at Damascus, but saving millions upon millions upon millions of people throughout the ages afterward. What a, what a great kindness of the Lord. Not just to save this man, Saul, but to give us this account of it. And we'll see again, there's, there's more to be learned and gleaned from Saul and his conversion, not just his ministry. We'll get there when we get to Acts 22 and 26. We'll see in, in Saul's own words what happened. But until then, we're still hearing from Luke about Saul. Amen.